Today is Monday, March 23rd. This is the Monday Morning Analyst here on MMAfighting.com. My name is Luke Thomas. You may follow me on Twitter at SBNLukeThomas uh, and a thousand other places. Thank you for watching. Today on the podcast, we'll obviously start with UFC Fight Night 62 featuring Demi and Maya versus Ryan LaFlair. Then it, we'll also touch on, but not a whole lot, the NCAA Wrestling Championships. And we'll briefly touch on um, EBI 3, the Eddie Bravo 3 Invitational. And then we'll, of course, discuss news and notes about what's coming up next in the world of combat sports and submission grappling and whatever else the case may be. So, uh, as I mentioned before, how to get in touch with me on Twitter, you can uh, email me at luke.thomas at espionation.com. And you may also get at me on facebook.com slash Sports. As you know, the way this works, 30 minutes or less. I try anyway. I don't quite get there. But I try to give you 30 minutes or less on the clock. So, with that being said, let's go ahead and kick it off now. All right, clock's ticking. First of all, the big overview. When I looked at this event, UFC Fight Night 62, which, by the way, took place, I should say, and I'll talk about this event a little more specifically when we get down to it, at the uh, Ginasio or Ginasio uh, Maracanazinho uh, in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Um, there wasn't a whole lot to take away from the technical side of things, other than, you know, at least not in any new or novel ways that I can describe here for these purposes, except to say what was funny was I had a different engagement in town that night, and so I wasn't able to watch live, so then I went back and watched on my DVR, but it was I was trying to match what people were saying on my Twitter feed about that event, not the one I was at, but the UFC event, um, and trying to match it with my expectations, and there was a lot of, of belly aching. Now, there's always a lot of belly aching on Twitter or social media generally. That's not a particularly novel thing, but what was really striking to me was that when I went and watched the event on Fox Sports 1, um, it didn't feel like it dragged at all. Now, here's the key. I was fast-forwarding through everything, except the fights themselves. Maybe I watched a couple tales of the tape, maybe watched a couple of post-fight interviews if I knew to, to key in on one. But I really kind of fast-forwarded through everything. And what that basically told me was, and this is nothing new that we haven't discussed here before, but what was really interesting to me is, they put, if you notice those Fox Sports 1, like for a UFC pay-per-view event, it's five fights on the main card. If they have an additional time to air additional bouts, they will. But if that's how they schedule it. They schedule five fights. Um, and, uh, you know, Bellator might do four or five, depending on the nature of their event. Uh, I think Wilters of Fighting typically does about four, and Victor about four or five. More recently, more like four. Um, but they do six on the Fox Sports 1 main card. Six. That's already after two to three fights on Fight Pass. That's already after... Four fights on the prelim version of the Fox Sports 1, or if it airs on, say, Fox Sports 2 or something like that. Then on the Fox Sports 1 main card show, with six fights, you're already adding an additional fight. Now what you're also doing is you're then throwing it back to the studio to give perspective, and you're throwing it to, um, you know, just various different production elements to promote upcoming shows, like the one in Fairfax, or whatever the case may be. And what was interesting to me was that, like, when they went to the studio with Brian Stan and Dominic Cruz, they were giving great information. Like, when I was on my DVR, I wanted to stop to listen to what they had to say. All of this is a roundabout way of saying is that the content I thought was actually pretty good. The way in which they produce the show and the length at which they produce the show is abysmal. It is tortuous. 
and you've not this is not the first time you've heard me say this this is not simply me trying to find a way to reconfirm what I saw on Twitter that night this is just a roundabout way of me trying to say they have got to do something about those Fox Sports 1 broadcasts the fights are great the commentary is great the analysis in studio particularly when it's Brian Stan and Dominic Cruz is also great but my god is that getting lost in the length of the broadcast We've mentioned it before about all the reasons they have for extending the fights past midnight into 1 a.m. and having it as long as it is for all the ratings purposes to then set up the Fox Sports Live broadcast. I understand all that. You still are making, you are, you are, you are presenting a product and making it look worse than it is. It's actually pretty good. And it's not, and I know for their own purposes the ratings are what they want to be or even better, but all I mean to say is if you're at all a, you know, a, 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 um, uh, tenured customer, you must be looking at this being like, my God, can we get on with this? The broadcasts are hard to watch. I'm just, I'm just being honest. They're hard to watch, and they're making that unnecessarily hard to watch. I'd like to see them make some kind of sacrifice for their own purposes on behalf of the consumer. It's just, it's just so, it's so difficult. It's so difficult, and it's. I'm not gonna say it's totally unnecessary because I get why they're doing it, but they'll do something about it. If more consumers start making choices about it and making some complaints about it, I like the fights. I don't have a lot to say about it badly in that regard, but wow, I mean, the difference between DVRing and watching a full on broadcast with all those repetitive commercials at that length is astronomical. Okay, that's the big overview. Now, let's move in to the fights, to the events. Um, in this particular case, Let's talk first about what happened, not so much in chronological order, but in importance of uh, order of importance relative to your, this audience. So we'll start with UFC Fight Night 62. Again, I mentioned that the Gimnasio or Gimnasio do Maracanazinho, uh, obviously my Portuguese is not particularly good. Um, the attendance was estimated at, or at least reported at, 7,707. This is a smaller venue. I'm not exactly sure what the capacity of this uh, venue is. Let's see here. What does Wikipedia say? Well, the record attendance is 35,000. I'm not sure what that was for. That seems a little bit high, doesn't it? Or maybe that's for the World Cup events. I'm not sure what the little gym to the side of it gets. Neither here nor there. In any event. Um, and, of course, uh, headlined by a welterweight fight between Demi and Maya and Ryan LaFleur. We'll get to that in just a moment. We'll start at the bottom of the card. Uh, the first Colombian to ever win. That was a big deal in my house, right? Freddie Serrano defeated Bentley Seiler via KO at 134 of the third round. I wouldn't say there's a whole lot to take away from this bout um, from a technical perspective. I was actually surprised at Freddie Serrano's striking from what I had seen previously from some of his fights in Colombia. Um, he had a long way to go. Uh, obviously, Alex Rolo Torres, forgive my Spanish, um, he also, well, he was the very first Colombian to debut, but I thought his striking was way behind the curve. I thought Freddie's was better. A little bit, he's obviously a much better athlete. He took third, uh, he took the bronze medal, I believe, at the 90, what do I want to say, 97 Pan Am Games? Something like that. Um, and went to the Olympics as well. He actually wore his Olympic singlet at the weigh-in. Um, so his was a little more athletic, a little more agile, a little bit single shotty, throwing some uh, spinning back kicks when he had the opportunity when Silo was was circling into them, but never really landed in with any kind of full effect. I landed a couple decent shots. I think it was a quicker athlete, better scramble of the two. Definitely had some good blast doubles in the first and that second round. 
Um, what was interesting to me was he had thrown some uppercuts. You notice he was throwing... If you, the, the jab is good for many reasons, not least of which is for measurement, not least of which is to set up your other strikes, but also to, like other strikes, set up re certain reactions. And if you noticed, Siler had a low stance because he was waiting for the takedown and was doing a lot of defensive shelling. And I don't know what they said to him between the second and third round, that being Freddie Serrano, because if you notice, he had thrown a couple of uppercuts earlier in the fight, but by that third round was really going to the uppercut a lot. And um, the final one came, he just jabbed, but not really any kind of real way. In fact, he was kind of far away. He, I think he saw Siler trying to close the distance from far out through the jab just to get enough of the range finding that he needed, maybe also to then, so that he could switch shoulder positions and come up higher with it, through a rear uppercut and just landed uh, almost perpendicular on him, uh, and then shut the lights out. Siler was KO'd upon impact. I mean, that was one of those, like, bus driver uppercuts from hell. Got him. Bang. Blew him out. Um, you know, I thought Siler was okay. I thought he did a decent job at least staving off some of the takedowns early, avoiding any kind of big shots. Uh, Freddie Serrano's 35. I don't know exactly what his upside is going to be given his late age. But, you know, I can tell you just from my, uh, you know, from what I know about the Colombian MMA scene, he had a greeting party when he returned to El Dorado uh, Airport in, in Bogota. He was on national news that night, or at least maybe the next day. Um, so in any event, this was a guy who, you know, this is what the kind of thing you need. I'd say, I'd say outside of Brazil, the Argentines have a decent scene. Obviously, Mexico's on the come up as well. But absent those two countries, the rest of Spanish-speaking Latin America really has a long way to go. And yeah, I'm not saying this will change Colombian MMA overnight, but it's just another piece you can add to the composite sketch to, you know, to help bring about, um, um, you know, Spanish-speaking Latin Americans' development in mixed martial arts. Uh, let's see. Christos Giagos, Giagos, however you pronounce it, defeated Jorge de Oliveira via rear naked choke at 312 of the first round. This was actually pretty cool. Um, I'm trying to remember how he moved to mount. I think he had an underhook. Um, Giagos did. He had an underhook. How did he get that exactly? And he recaptured it. I can't remember how he moved to mount, but that was not what I noticed. What I noticed was he eventually had it, almost lost it on a heel hook. A lot of guys will go now to the heel hook if they've been mounted. The Henzo Gracie guys are good about this. They will get you to bump up just to create enough space to then almost like a half single leg X guard. They'll throw they'll throw the outside leg over the top and then look to, to heel hook the, uh, the ankle. Giagos actually took it and then threw it by almost like a pass uh, and then moved right back into mount. That was cool. I can't remember how he captured the mount, but that wasn't what I wanted to focus on because there's two other guys who took mount in a better way. Number one, um, Gilbert Burns took him out in an interesting way, and then the best mount taking I saw was from Leonardo Santos. We'll get to that in just a moment. But uh, what I want to talk about was how he took the back. This was how I liked. So he he moves to a high mount. If you're going to put your hips down and flatten, you got to be back. If you want to have your hips up, you should move in tight. Okay. Um, but if you try to sit down on their chest and you're in tight, you can. It's an easier. They have so much more of their body and their hips open to move for them to react. And he didn't do that. He actually kept his hips up. Got two hands on the left arm of De Oliveira. Moved it across his body as much as he could. And it looked like he was sitting out for an arm bar. But he wasn't. He never hooked under the arm. He kept it out here, sat his hips out to the corner, and then rolled Oliveira into the way in which he had already sat, that open space, and then used it to take, put the other hook in to take the back. That was great. That was really, really great. Aggressive jujitsu. I'm not saying that would work against the better guys in, in MMA, but it's just nice to see somebody 
um, not take the back by just ending up there with punches. You know what I mean? I like someone who muscles his way. When I say muscle, I'm not saying there's no technique, but I mean just physically impose your will on someone. It's like a very wrestler mentality to take the back that way. Had the two hands, pushed it across, almost did a, like, a, like, a, like a chair sit, not quite, but sat his hips out just enough so that he could, he, and, and, that, and you have to hold that arm because if you don't, they're going to get their elbow down and they're, you're going to get reversed. But if you can hold it through the motion, and then you can scoot your hips out one more time, you can like do a half shrimp out, at a circular angle, you can throw the other hook on top, and that's exactly what it did. Great job by Giagos in doing that. That was for the two fights on the Fight Pass card. We now move to the preliminary card. Leonardo Mafra defeating Kane Carrizosa. 30-26, 30-27, 30-27. Not a lot to say about this one, I'd say, except that I'd say Mafra um, has improved a lot. I thought he looked pretty good in this fight. I mean, understanding the level of competition he was going against. Um, not that Carrizosa was bad, but, you know, not necessarily a world beater. Uh, but I thought Mafra had shown a lot of improvement technically. Throwing three, four, five punch and or five strike combinations. I really enjoyed that. But to me, the lesson of that fight was just the pace and the physicality of Mafra. He just constantly was attacking, constantly, constantly, constantly. Because if you go back and look, he he got tagged a few times in that first round, but he never took his foot off the gas. He was always pressuring. He was always throwing strikes. He was landing to a fair amount. He had a nice, diverse enough arsenal to keep Carrizosa guessing about which way he was going to go, which side, top and bottom, leg or foot. Um, he was going to the body a little bit, and then when they would tie up in the clinch, he was clearly the physically more imposing guy of the two. He had good defensive jiu-jitsu, so he could avoid some of the guard work, uh, the high guard work that Carrizosa was trying to do. Um, he could bang him out on the ground and pound. He was stronger in the clinch against the fence, and he just, imp- I mean, it's, you can't point to any one technique. You can't really point to any one guard pass. You can't point to any one sort of dominating moment in the clinch where he was really good at level changing off strikes and getting up under, picking up Carrizosa. What I also liked was when he slammed him, he would slam him at an angle so he could end up in side control. He just did a lot of things right. Just did a lot of things right. A great overall performance, but it was one where it was like one guy was going to go in there and say, I don't have a calling card I can look at and say, this is my, my left hook is going to put your lights out or my, my triangle arm bar is going to put your lights out. It wasn't that exactly. It was just that I'm going to go in there, I'm going to bang you out wherever we go. And I'm going to, I'm going to positionally advance wherever we go. And I'm going to control you wherever we go. And that's exactly what he did. I was actually really impressed by it. Moving on, Leandro Silva defeated Drew Dober, hee-haw. Via guillotine choke at 2.45 of the second round. There's a much longer breakdown that the Gracie Breakdown uh, guys did. Here's just what I would say. If I have a guillotine choke here on this side, the counter is if your head is locked here, you jump to this side. right? So it's cross body. And in fact, if you don't let go in there, you can get what's called Von Flu choked. We've seen that a million times, right? Okay. Um, but he didn't quite get all the way across, that being Drew Dover. He got halfway across in the half guard. Now, if you actually watch the Eddie Bravo Invitational... Uh, there were some submissions, uh, guillotine chokes, um, I think actually from top position from there. So in other words, just because one person isn't quite at a cross body, uh, or uh, hasn't fully achieved cross body, I should say, doesn't mean you can't get it, but it's really, really hard to do with those MMA gloves. It's hard to do in MMA. This isn't, these aren't full-on submission grappling guys in full-on submission grappling context. Point being is if you have half guard and someone is trying guillotine, chances are you're just fine. And here's just really the specifics of the matter. If you had noticed, uh, Dober actually took his right arm out and went for, um, and went to cross-face him. So he had his head on the one side and he was cross-facing this side. At that point, 
Silva had already let go of the grip. The grip was already off, and then he goes to crossface, and then the bout gets stopped. It's, I mean, it's, you know, so utterly unforgivable. If someone is moving, number one, they haven't been stopped. Number two, if they're cross-facing someone, that means they're taking offensive maneuvers. If you're cross-facing someone, it means you're trying to control them to get the pass. If I control everything up here, if I, if I don't allow your neck to move, if I put shoulder pressure here and it turns your head all the way over, you can't move your hips. That's what that's for. That's what the whole thing's designed for. And that's what he was going for. And I'm not saying he locked it up, but I'm saying that's, that's the direction he was headed. So to stop the bout there is just one of the most ridiculous things I think I've ever seen. Now, I, had, I wrote on Twitter that it was borderline unforgivable. And people saying, well, no, it's entirely for, uh, unforgivable. I don't know about that. Am I really going to say that the guy should never ref ever again in the history of his life? Okay, I think that's a little strong. But certainly, he should not be refing anyone at this level anytime soon. And people were telling me he might be an MMA fighter or even a jiu-jitsu black belt. Good, I'm glad that he is. Because that shows you all the time people are like, we need fighters to be judges, we need fighters to be refs. Sorry, refing might be benefited by having someone who's a black belt. It might be benefited by having someone who's fought MMA. That in and of itself is not criteria for doing the job correctly. There are so many other factors that go into it that have nothing to do with it. I would like my referees to have some level of training. But I don't think it's required. I think refereeing, effective refereeing, involves many other skills unrelated to whether your jab cross is good or you have an excellent double leg um, or you've weathered a storm in a bad fight. You know, those things might help. I'm not saying they're worthless or irrelevant, but they, in and of themselves, I don't think are requisite experience. Referee training involves a lot of other things other than just having a fighter and saying, no, no, this time don't be a fighter, just watch two fighters and get in the middle. It's a lot more than that. It's really a lot more than that. Um, but not much more to say about that. I thought Drew Dober's movement looked pretty good, but um, it's sort of lost in the whole thing. Kevin Souza, Souza defeated Katsunori Kakuno via KO punch and 131 of the first round. I haven't seen a dusting like this of a Japanese guy with an antiquated style of fighting since Nick Diaz blasted through Koji Oishi. But um, there's not a whole lot to this one. Souza was long and lean, and Kukuno had like that open stance here where everything in the middle is wide open, his posture was straight. And what you notice out of Souza was he would jump in straight and then immediately jump out back and at a right angle. So he was coming out slightly diagonal every time. Um, I think, I'm not exactly sure what he was anticipating, but I watched him circle almost a full rotation on the cage. He wasn't coming in and out as they moved. He would jump in straight and then jump out semi-laterally on the way out. I think he was worried about maybe the right hand of Kakuno or the way in which he was circling. Um, but he was sort of dictating that himself, actually. I think it was the right he was watching out for with Kakuno because he wanted to get just out of the way of it. Uh, in any event, um, he wasn't throwing a lot of combinations. Um, he basically just timed a right hand down the middle. I'm not sure if he was designing a right hand to catch Kakuno as he was dropping his head, or if that was designed to go to the body and he just ate it on the way. It's not quite clear, but whatever the case, uh, you know, listen, if one guy is moving and has a reach advantage and is quicker, and the other person is sort of waiting for them to strike with a wide open, you know, defensive stance, there's not a whole lot to break down there. Dominic Cruz talked about one guy stopping moving, that being Kakuno. He sort of got caught uh, not moving in space. That's part of it, too. Um, but really, to me, it was just a matter of time. Like, if you let someone fire down the middle, 
I mean, they're going to land something sooner or later. Uh, Francisco Trinaldo defeated Akbar Ariola. This was an interesting fight I want to talk about, too. Uh, across the board, uh, via unanimous decision, 30-27 in all three judges' scorecards. And that would, that would close out. By the way, I guess it aired on Fox Sports, too. I should take that back. Whatever the case may be. Um, anyway, this fight was interesting to me because they're both jiu-jitsu brown belts. And Ariola did nothing except hold closed guard until whatever the case may be. Here's why that's bad. It's bad for a number of reasons. And I had, I had, the reason I was gone was because I had called in, uh, some amateur fights out in town. Um, the guard is funny in MMA. Guys, I think, are really confused about what to do with it. The best use of the guard is, first of all, getting back to your feet is essential. Um, but what I would recommend is, I think, you know, listen, Pettis' jiu-jitsu has a liability, which we talked about last week, that it's, it's, it's really just an extension of his striking, right? Where he catches you, bang, you make a poor decision, and when you make a poor decision, you leave openings related to submission opportunities that he then latches onto. But that's where the offense is connected. Uh, I'm not saying that that holds up as the best form of jiu-jitsu because it turns out that when you put another guy who's got a more complete game and Rafael Dos Anjos, he can't respond as well. But what I would say, though, is it's that quick strike jiu-jitsu that's successful for a reason. is because extended guard play is just highly problematic. It's just highly problematic. Uh if you can't sweep or submit within the first 30 seconds, get up. I think that's just a basic rule at this point. If you cannot sweep or submit within 30 seconds, get up. Just restart, because you are in a bad way at that point. Now, obviously, getting up is hard to do. And obviously, sweeping is hard to do. And obviously, submissions are hard to do. But if you can't sweep or submit, that should just be the rule in your mind. If you can't sweep or submit within 30 seconds, get up. Just get up. Find a way to get up. And we've talked about different ways. Matt Brown going for a submission that he maybe wasn't the tightest, but it forced Johnny Hendricks to move away as a consequence. That created the space to get up. There's that kind of way. Putting the feet on the hips, that's dangerous. You can do it, but it's dangerous um, because you, you know, you're extending your limbs away from your body to, to then create a potential guard pass, but it can be done. Uh, or you know, just you know, inching your way back to the fence and, and then getting behind it and then doing the things you need to do. But what's interesting to me is that when you actually get a guy like what Ariola did, where he's holding on to closed guard, it actually, I think it affects the other guy's performance. And here's why. If I know you're not going to go for any submissions or any sweeps from closed guard, I don't really see any need to pass. Now, if I don't pass, maybe I'm limiting my own offense. Now, maybe some guys don't need to pass. They have that Tito Ortiz ground pound they can use from inside the guard. But Trinaldo's not really one of those guys. Not saying he wasn't landing good shots, but maybe that's not the best place for him to do all kinds of different forms of his offense. What I'm saying is, if I know you're not going to sweep, and I know you're not going to submit. If you're just going to hold closed guard on me, I'm going to lower my level of performance because I know I'm safe. In other words, listen, I could take a risk. I could try to pass. Maybe he gets away and this whole thing goes back to the feet. He was winning there too, but you get the idea. You know, you got this guy down. Might as well use it. I might say, you know what? Maybe I'm more limited in your guard, but you're not doing anything in your guard. I'm guaranteed to win here. And I think that's what happened to Trinaldo. He didn't really try to pass. He didn't really try to break the guard. He didn't stand and then push down on the side of the knee. He didn't dig a hand back and try to, you know, even that that's, that can be dangerous, he didn't dig a hand back and try to bait the triangle, which Verdum sometimes will do, by the way. Verdum has done that in nogi grappling and MMA. Now, Verdum is obviously a world champion, but you get the idea. It can be done. Um, I actually think it not only hindered Ariola's performance, it hindered Trinaldo's. But Trinaldo realized risk-reward here, yeah, I'm not letting my 
full Arsenal fly, but I can be a little bit less of a version of what I am and still get away with a great decision win, which is exactly what he did. So to me, uh, and maybe you can say the referee had some responsibility there to do something about it. Okay, fine. But I just want to point that out. It's when a guy stalls with a full guard, he isn't just stalling himself. He's actually bringing down the level of the fight overall because he's changing the risk-reward equation for his opponent. Then we move on to the main card. Uh, Godofredo uh, Pepe, Godofredo, Godofredo Castro defeated Andre Feely via, via flying triangle choke. This was awesome. This happened at 314 of the first round. Did you guys see how he did this? Brilliant. Check it out. When I land a tri- if I'm in, if I'm on my back, I'm using my guard. You are my opponent. What are you going to do if I lock up full guard, at least in a jiu-jitsu uh, setting? You're going to get your posture straight, right? Because if you're down here, chest to chest, I can start to go to work. Maybe I can get an omoplata. Maybe I can get one of those over-the-top head arm bars, right, where it's just a straight one here in front of you. Um, I can get a normal arm bar. I can get a triangle. I can do all kinds of things when I break your posture. But if I don't break your posture, well, there's not a whole lot I can really do. I may have to do a upa sweep or a sit-up guard, or I may have to then just back out, right? Here's the benefit of having someone in the clinch with you. You're chest-to-chest. Just move them this way. Now what's happening? You are chest-to-chest. Godofredo Pepe, is the cage basically is the same thing as the, as the mat. You have the posture control that you need to do it. You just have to get the flying aspect part up, which he did. How did he do it? On the right hand, he had an overhook, but a deep, deep overhook. You could see his hand come through off the other side of them, um, uh, of the clinch. How did he do it on this hand? Andre Feely, trying to dig for an underhook, lost it, lost it, and then what you saw was Godofredo Pepe had the grip here. He then found a way, as they fought, to go here. What did he do? Drove the wrist down with the underhook and then threw the leg over the top. Bang. Got it. And then sat to his guard. And the reason why he didn't get bumped off was because that underhook, or excuse me, that overhook was so freaking tight. Now, I don't think his legs broke on the slam either, but it didn't matter. He didn't get released or slid or pushed with enough force for that to make an impact because that overhook was so fantastic. From there, he did a, a number of adjustments. Couldn't quite get the arm. You could see uh, Feely trying to keep his, you know, either either his elbow to the mat or get his hand behind him so that he couldn't get it put in front of him like this. That helps close it. But eventually, um, you know, uh, Godofredo Pepe, Pepe was able to just pull the head down, which I'm not sure what he didn't do from the beginning, but um, you get the idea. Fantastic job. All right, Gilbert Burns, another great submission over Alex Oliveira via armbar. He had a tough fight at first, by the way. Um, he and Santos had similar levels of striking where it's there wasn't bad striking at all, but just very, very limited, you know, uh, things they could do. And again, here was a guy who was defensively shelling the whole time. So you saw Oliveira going to the body a lot in that fight. But let's talk about that ending sequence. First of all, did anyone catch the cage grab? that uh, Durinho did. I'm a big fan of Gilbert Burns, but he, uh, first of all, oh, first round, he goes for an Ouchi Gardi, sort of like a, a inside trip, can't get it, so what happens is, and he may have been setting it up the whole time, he goes for an inside trip on the opposite leg, it takes a step back so the guy can plant his weight, but he's, that's exactly what he's looking for. Then Durinho c- keeps moving, turning him in a corner, uh, turn him on an angle, I should say, and then uses the other foot to sweep out the one you've planted. You're looking for a guy to get his weight on that foot because if you take the weight off of it and move him around, either at an angle or backwards, 
they fall. So that's exactly what he did. So he went from Ouchigari to Kouchigari, but he used the Ouchigari to set up the second one. Brilliant. Okay. Um, but, he, you know, the striking department had a lot of bad things going on for him. But here's what happened on the mat towards the end. So Dorino was trying to move in. He, he had achieved mount. He actually got a... Um, do you remember the, the takedown? The, I think, I, I don't know what wrestlers call it. It's actually one of the ones that I have a little bit of success with. You get double underhooks and then you sidestep around. I think it's a step around throw is what they call it. Um, but you get double underhooks, you step around at a, at a perpendicular angle with them and then you use you sort of wooden your legs to block. You pick them up and then you, uh, um, slam them. He had actually tried to jump to the other side in the process. Couldn't quite get there, got locked in half guard, but then eventually had, if you watch, he had his right hand down to block Olivera's left knee from coming in getting knee shield and then he just slid his right knee down so that was kind of cool by Dorino all right so he has the mount great from there he tries to sit up really high on the mount and you notice he tried to put a leg up he had an underhook here on the left side but he saw Olivera was getting his hips back and trying to get away so as he did it he actually grabbed the fence replaced his underhook with the leg that was already up so there's 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 not a big movement that has to happen to get it over. You're already, the space is kind of closed. Throws it over the top, but then used it to keep the posture down and to keep, help him to spin on an, on an axis um, to get it. So he cheated a little bit to get the omoplata, but he gets it. An omoplata, what you always want to make sure you have is if you're the one who's caught, you don't want to be face forward. You want to be kind of up. It's hard to finish um, because it's easier with the gi. Because with the gi, uh, or in jiu-jitsu generally, because you can get a wrist lock from there, but with the gloves, there's basically no wrist lock. What you want them to do is you want to, if you have the omoplata, so you're here and you're turning them, you actually want to create a little bit of space so that they fall flat to the mat. But if they're on their knees and they've got good posture, you know, you're in trouble. So they want to be face forward and down. If you're getting omoplata, you want to be upright. Um, and there's other, other ways to get out of it. Uh, there's actually um, a, a, a pass you, I learned not too long ago that you can do from there. That's pretty cool if you're the one getting omoplotted. Easier said than done. Um, but in any case, there's actually one thing he was doing too. He was trying to prevent, like once Burns had locked up the triangle with his legs, he was trying to like hold it open. You actually want to pull it close. Um, if someone has their triangle locked you and you want to pull on something, you want to pull it this way, right? Because the, the, the muscles in the leg to hold it are really weak, and that loosens up the grip. But that's neither here nor there. Um that was not what interested me. Burns couldn't get it after setting it up several times. Eventually got, uh, oh, almost moved to mount. So let him roll and tried to tried to circle backwards into the mount or at least side control and couldn't because his other arm was trapped on the other side. But eventually moves back to mount against the fence and says, okay, we're going to try this one more time. So gets, uh, has one leg high behind the armpit, tries to throw the other leg for a triangle. Oliveira sees it, puts his hand right by his face to block it. Right, because if you get two arms in, two arms out, you're okay. Um, Burns decides to still roll. Rolls to his back. And this was the moment Oliveira could have gotten out and didn't. I was shocked. So they roll. Burns releases the triangle because he realizes he doesn't have one there. He's going to waste his time doing it. And tries to move into the armbar. And there's a moment where um, Burns is, has Oliveira's right arm. There's a moment where he has his... Yes, his right arm. Uh, and Burns tries to lock up the triangle again, or at least the arm bar again. But here's the point I'm trying to make. Oliveira is this way. He's got his arm this way, right? And what he's trying to do is, it, he could have stood, 
Oops, there's the 30 minutes. I'll make this faster. He could have stood if he'd need to and didn't. But the point being was there was a moment there where he could have he should have gone back into Burns. If my right arm, someone's trying to submit my right arm, but they're to my if their head is to my left, I want to circle into the head. I want to pull my elbow out and around. And what you saw Burns do was quickly put his left, excuse me, his right leg over the back of Oliveira to control his posture and to keep him there so he could crunch everything back in and get it going again. Eventually, uh, he actually did take one evasive maneuver, hopping over uh, Burns as Burns went uh, belly down, and that was fine. But then what you try to see him do is he tries to go back the other way again to escape it. Burns won't let him, grabs his leg. Burns then turns him, then lets him go, and finishes it off. Like Kenny Florian talked about him going the wrong way, but Burns had actually stopped him from going the right way to escape it. But there was a moment there where he was trying to work on the arm, the right arm, and, and he could have just passed to the left. If he had drove his left hip leftwards, pulling his right arm rightwards, right? Like you're just turning to the right, he could have done it. That was a, there was a moment in time where Oliveira had it and, and, um, and just didn't finish it. That was what I noticed to me, was he burns, tries to lock up the triangle. Oliveira puts the hand on the face. They still turn. After they turn, there's a moment where the guard becomes a little bit loose. Oliveira could have passed back into the left, pulling his right arm out, didn't. The, the right leg of uh, uh, Burns clamps down again on Oliveira's neck, and from there, it was just, it was all over. All right, we have to uh, hustle through these a little bit here. Amanda Nunes defeated Shayna Baszler at 156 of the first round. Uh, I, I went back and watched this fight a number of times. I don't know if Baszler landed a single strike in that fight, maybe one or two. But what I definitely noticed was um, there was only one moment where she was the uh, first to initiate a, uh, a strike. She did two double jabs once, both of which missed. But she at least was they were they were you know they were facing one another, jab jab misses. But you know she was the first one to start the exchange. All other exchanges were started by Amanda Nunes, all of them. So she was just able to tee off whatever she wanted to do. Hey, shot to the body. Hey, liver kick. Hey, outside leg kick. So to me, it's like not even a point in breaking down what Nunes did because she just basically had open season. It was target practice. I'd like to see uh, Shayna Baszler. Maybe sort of reevaluate what she's going to be doing in her career at this point. She is uh, on a bit of a career slide, to put it mildly. Uh, I'll quickly go over this one. Leonardo Santos defeated Tony Martin at 229 of the second round via rear naked choke. Um, just real quickly, the only thing I'll talk about here is because I'm low on time. Um, so Santos has taken down Martin, and Martin has half butterfly guard. He has a butterfly hook on the on his left side. I'm Martin. I'm looking up at Santos. I've got a butterfly hook here, and my other hook is on top. Okay. Um, Santos is a, is a, is a, just a genius. So he he steps over. Is that right? No, I'm sorry. Yes, I have a left butterfly hook here on the left side. Um, Santos steps over the butterfly hook, and in so doing, you see the the right leg of of Martin come down because he's diving for the underhook to stand. But as he does that, he stops the last potential line of defense so that Santos goes to his right to pass through that one butterfly hook and then drives his left knee uncontested on the other side because Martin was too worried about the underhook. Boom. So yeah, Martin got his underhook and then found himself in mount. Brilliant job by Leonardo Santos. Uh, really kind of impressive. Stepping over the butterfly hook, leaving his left knee on the ground, uh, well, slightly up, but you know, uh, basically in a similar position, and then when that other leg is out of the party, drive the knee through, and now you have him out. Crazy. Uh, Eric Silva defeated Josh Koscheck at 421 of the first round. Koscheck made a number of mistakes here, not least of which was um, 
So you saw Silva try and lock up a guillotine standing. And I think Koscheck did what he thought was right was he saw an opening on the other side of the guillotine. Hey, let me put my hand there so that when he drops, it's going to be an arm and guillotine. But that doesn't mean a whole lot. You can transition. If you already got it locked up, you can do a lot, especially, you know, in MMA these days. These guys have great arm and guillotines. They're not what they once were. I would have thought that he would have tried to move to the opposite side, that he would have tried to um, put his left hand behind the left knee and then try to walk around, do something to not let uh, the, the choke sit. But it was an immediate impact. I'm going to drive my right arm through. Well, now you have a now you have the kind of choke that is a little bit harder to catch, but it's not hard enough to catch, as we all saw. Uh, and then lastly, Demian Maia versus Ryan LaFleur defeated him at 48-46, 48-46, and 48-46. Great performance by uh, Demi and Maya. Fade a little bit in the fourth and obviously a lot in the fifth. But, um, you know, it's funny. I went back and watched this fight and was just trying to find, um, you know, how did he do this? How was he able to do this? Uh, first of all, he hit a number of the, the same leg weave passes. That remember, the, remember the leg weave pass Conor McGregor hit on Dennis Seaver? Maya must have used that three or four times in this fight, first of all. Second of all, what was interesting to me is that you know what's great about Maya? Uh, Kenny Florian noted it, his timing, but it's a little bit more than that. Because even if he can't get you with his initial timing, let's say you just got great reaction time too, you, you, you drive an underhook as he tries to get on your hips, Maya's really good about somehow never letting go of a grip. And when he doesn't let go of a grip, maybe he has to change the grip. Like he may not be able to keep a tight waist, maybe he goes from a tight waist to something to an ankle pick or something. But he's good about keeping his hands on you even when you scramble. And the other part I like about him is he uses his whole body for takedowns. In other words, uh, if he gets a tight waist on you and you scramble and you drive an underhook and he then changes to an ankle pick and that doesn't work, he'll bring his leg around for a trip. You know what I mean? He attacks upper and lower body at the same time and he always finds a way to keep his hands on you. He's always got one kind of grip he's using. Even if you break that one, that's not the end of it. He's got another one he's always looking for. He's He doesn't chain together takedowns so well as, although he does that well, he chains together his ability to stay on you, to keep one grip or another on you, to keep something on you so that no matter what kind of grip you're breaking, if you're always behind in the grip-breaking battle, you're going to lose. This is true for everything. This is true for to, many, to a large extent for wrestling. This is true to a large extent for, I mean, it's certainly true for judo. And I can tell you it's very true for jiu-jitsu, gi and no gi. If you win the gripping battle, chances are you're going to win the match. It's just how it goes. And so he just always finds a way to win the grip battle, man. It's crazy. It's crazy. And then he attacks upper and lower body really well. He doesn't focus in on one. Um, you have to use both upper and lower body to get most takedowns at this level. But I just mean he's really adept at it. You know, if he can't get a traditional blast double, uh, he'll go for an ankle pick. If he can't get the ankle pick, he'll go back to the tight waist. The tight waist doesn't work. He's got a series of trips from all different kinds of positions. And he marries it all really well. He's just so sticky in that way. Really, really impressive job by Demi and Maya, even if he faded late. Okay, real quickly, let's go over the results. I know I'm over time here for the NCAA Wrestling Championships. I won't say a whole lot about this except for one thing. We'll point to uh, Drake Hadashel of Missouri defeated uh, David Habat of Edinburgh to win 149 pounds. You notice that ever since Dave Taylor, they're now starting the wrestling, rather than just starting uh, at the lowest weight class and then working up to the highest, they now let you vote on which one to start at and end at. And they ended at the one of Logan Stever because he was going up for four titles. 157 pounds. Uh, Isaiah Martinez of Illinois, first freshman since Cale Sanderson to go undefeated. He wins a national title there. Uh, Alex Derringer for Oklahoma State wins at 165 pounds. He went undefeated this season as well. 
Uh, Matthew Brown out of Penn State beating Tyler Wilps because of a technicality of hands locked on uh, from uh, uh, to prevent the escape, starting on bottom position. Unbelievable. Gabe Dean of Cornell, he wins a national title as well. Uh, this is the one I want to talk about, the Kevin Gadsden of Iowa State. Amazing. So uh, you see Kyle Snyder reach for a single, and what happens is you see um, Gadsden drive his leg to the floor while pulling up on the underhook. He's already uh, on the uh, on on. So in other words, he's already got an underhook on the left side. He's taking his right leg and he's gonna he's gonna grab behind Snyder's elbow while he drives his leg to the mat. So now with both feet are on the ground, he stopped the single. He's got an underhook on one side and he's got a, sort of behind slight overhook grabbing the elbow on the other side. He then goes for a trip on the same leg that had just been picked up, gets it, uses it to go for a pin. And what I liked was. Um, where he had the overhook, or excuse me, where he had the underhook, he uses it to hold to get to the mat. Once he gets to the mat, replaces his the overhook, excuse me, the underhook with his head. So now his head is holding the position to get both shoulders to the mat, and now the free hand blocks the hips from rolling. That was slick. That was slick. So it's not the the turn itself is not that crazy, right? If I've got an underhook on one side and overhook on the other, I'm going to turn you one way. He blocks the supporting leg, gets it to the ground, but Let's go of the underhook to replace his head. Head now is, I mean, the head is on the mat, by the way. Completely laying Snyder's shoulders flat. Other hand on the hips to block the hips from turning in and rolling. Genius. Uh, let's see. After that, this kid from NC State, he won 35 and 0. I can never pronounce his name. Gwizdowski. Uh, he won last year, I think, as well. Nathan Tomasello out of Ohio State. Defeated Zeke Moisey. Zeke Moisey was unseated. Uh, and that was at 125 pounds now. 133 pounds. Cody Brewer defeated Corey Clark out of Oklahoma. And then Logan Stewart, of course, becomes only the fourth person ever to win four national titles in four years. And then last but certainly not least, we move to the Eddie Bravo 3 Invitational. Uh, I thought the presentation was fantastic. Um, I thought a guy who impressed me the most, certainly Josh Hindrew out of Atos, was really good. I also say I thought Karin Darbetian gave Gary Tonin a hell of a match. He looked really good from my impression. Show overall was okay. Um, not great because of the early seeds. It was so many mismatches. Um, Gary Tonin defeated, let's see, he defeated Eddie Cummings, his own friend. He defeated Karin Darbedian. He defeated, before that, uh, Josh Vallis out of Gracie Baja Pasadena. Uh, and then in the finals, defeated um, Josh Hinger. So he did a really good job. Uh, it was kind of funny. Um, uh, and by the way, Enrico Coco uh, is a guy who defeated a friend of mine. Eddie Cummings beat him. That was pretty pretty impressive but some of the uh, jiu-jitsu some of the 10th planet guys got housed richie martinez and nathan orchard lost i think in the in the round of eight uh which is kind of interesting as well gary tone is just amazing you know i mean that and that tournament style is really beneficial to him last thing i'll say about this number one because he's obviously tremendous at no gi and um, he has great cardio so he can go many matches over the course of time but if you just if you've ever watched gary tone and this is true for no, uh, for gi as well um, he's really 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 good at getting himself out of bad spots and so what happens is if you in the um, preordained amount of time if no one wins by submission each person starts on the other person's back and you know the rules are about who escapes the fastest or one person gets a sub and the other person can't get a sub when it's their turn whatever the case may be i'm just pointing out that um tonin is lethal in dominant positions and he's so squirmy and hard to do anything to 
even when you have a dominant position. It's not just that he's good at no-gi generally. It's that even the way it works in overtime speaks to the skills that Gary Tonin has. So he's going to be a handful. He's now won two of the, he's won both of the ones he's competed in and, of course, two of the total of the three. Uh, last note about this real quickly, looking forward, the future, Metamoris announced their card uh, for this week. Uh, or excuse me, for the next event. And we'll pull up something else as well. Um, three things I want you to look out for this week. Let's see, hold on just one second. Okay, real quickly, Metamoris announced their card. So this will be interesting. Uh, on the card, Josh Barnett taking on Cyborg Abreu. That should be fun. Going to be a lot of heavy guard play on that one. The key is for Barnett is if you let Abreu invert, you're going to be in some problems. Uh, Chael Sonnen versus Renato Sobral. Dylan Dennis, who I talked about on this podcast last week, taking on Joe Lazan, Battle of the Nibars, guaranteed. Salo Hibero taking on Keenan Cornelius. It appears to be in a no-gi bout. Uh, Clark Gracie taking on Roberto Satoshi. That will be back in the gi. And then Jeff Monson versus, we'll see. Um, so that's going to be coming up on May 9th. This week, World Series of Fighting 19. This will feature uh, the return of Justin Gaethje taking on Luis Baboon Palomino, Thiago Silva versus Matt Hamill, Ed West taking on Timur Valeev, Jake Hune versus Teddy Holder, and then Clifford Starks versus uh, Krasimir Mladenov. And then Bellator 135 is also this week. Do not forget about that as well. Uh, and let's see, that will feature uh, Joe Warren taking on uh, Marcos Galvan. That should be a fun fight, actually. Elsie Davis at Bantamweight taking on Hideo Takoro, Francis Carmont. Versus Guilherme Viana and then Dakota Cochran taking on Ryan Couture. On the prelim card, um, not this one's not that great. But there's a couple of ones that are coming up that have better prelim cards. So, be on the lookout for those things. Guys, I'm out of time. we got to go. I'm way over. You know how this works. You can email me at luke.thomas at espionation.com. Luke, uh, excuse me, facebook.com slash Sports, And of course, S at SBN Luke Thomas for... Um, well, there's no for anybody else. But thanks, everyone, for watching. I appreciate it. And uh, until next time, enjoy the fights. Bye, guys.